Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi all, and welcome to another episode of the Motormouth Podcast. Now today, I need you to focus, because we have a man on the show with a very impressive brain and an equally impressive CV. It's Dr. Tom McCarthy. He's executive director at a company called Aspire. Now, they're the people behind A2RL. If you haven't heard of that, it's the Abu Dhabi Autonomous Racing League. Yes, autonomous, no drivers. The technology is insane. And his vision around the future of autonomous mobility is a thing to behold. I hope you enjoy the show. And if you've got any questions, feel free to get in touch through our socials or send me a voice note to ts at motormouth-media.com and we'll be sure to respond in a future episode. But for now, let's go and meet one of the people at the beating computer heart of A2RL, Dr. Tom McCarthy. Tom, welcome to the show. Dr. Tom, I should say. Um, what, what we like to do, Tom, before we, we get into the nitty gritty of, of why you're here um, and talking about A2RL, uh, I'm always intrigued to find out what's shaped our guests, what's made them the person that they are. So take us back to uh, a young Tom before you were a doctor. What shaped you? Where did you grow up? Where was home originally? I grew up in Cork in Ireland, very far south of Ireland and uh, ended up going to university quite young when I was about 17, hadn't a clue what I was going to do and wandered in there someday and met the woman in the admissions office said, oh, I'd always wanted to do economics. And I said, what's that? She said, I don't know, just go down and try it out. So I walked into a lecture and it changed my life. I mean, uh, it taught me uh, how to think, think in different ways. And uh, I followed that passion then for about 10 years. I ended up going to Canada, doing graduate work and uh, then ultimately becoming a university professor. Uh, kept going at that for uh, about 15 years. And then one day somebody asked me to do a piece of management. Uh, I want. I had spent time in Canada and I wanted to create a graduate program in Ireland that could rival anything that could be done in North America. 
I did that and it was really, really successful. I attracted all the best students in Ireland to come to our course. And uh, then the university president said, hey, I'd like you to do that job at the university level. And that led to a job as a dean of graduate studies. And then in Ireland, about 25 years ago, they decided they want to really invest in research. So they needed people to be vice presidents for research in the universities. And I ended up doing that. And then because I was an economist and not a sort of a physicist or a biologist and wasn't going to be competing for money and had more of a policy bent, I ended up being asked to do big policy roles. I became chairman of Ireland's Advisory Science Council and of the Higher Education Authority. I became a member of that. So I, I ended up having a huge role in forming the policy for uh, research and development in Ireland. And uh, then I subsequently, you know, these were um, not so much full-time jobs. I was became a dean of a business school, chief executive of a management institute. And then after 15 years in management, I just said, I want to go back to projects. So I set up my own consultancy, spent about 10 years doing that, and ended up uh, coming to the uh, uh, UAE to do a project and really loved the uh, area. So I started spending about a third of my year uh, in uh, in the broader Gulf area. And then COVID hit. And so one had to go and do nutting for a while. I ended up building gardens and things. And then it convinced me that I needed a new challenge afterwards. And uh, then I got the opportunity to come here to work for Aspire in Abu Dhabi. And uh, and that has led me in all sorts of directions. If you said to me two or three years ago, you're going to be involved in motorsport and putting AI technology into robotic cars, I'd have said, what? Uh, <laughs> but I think it's been the nature of my career. Somebody once described it as, as peripathetic, and I thought that was an insult but i think peripathetic means uh, well traveled ah. so uh, my my career has taken the paths that have presented themselves i like that and i'm, I'm very much the same i like to just say yes to stuff and good things happen it's fine yeah, um, exactly so you're, you're in abu dhabi um i used to live in abu dhabi i was i was there for a couple of years then moved down to dubai thoroughly enjoyed it are you enjoying life in the sunshine it's a lovely place to be how is it for you I absolutely love Abu Dhabi. The first time I came here was to, uh, in 2014. And uh, from the minute I got here, I just, I liked the pace. I liked the people. I liked the diversity. Um, more so than Dubai. Dubai is, is very, it's a beautiful place to go visit. Not so much to live there. I love living in Abu Dhabi. So for the last two and a half years, uh, they've heard the standard of accommodation, the quality of accommodation is really good. The quality of life. And I mean, the, the point that, that stands out is the safety. An awful lot of my female colleagues talk about it as being the safest place they've ever lived in in the world. And uh, it's a wonderful, wonderful place to work. Yeah, it is. And you benefit from that lovely sunshine. Are you going to come back in the summer or are you going to stick it out and cope with that ridiculous heat? <laughs> I, I actually, in a strange way, remember I grew up in Ireland, the south coast of Ireland, my house there is on the sea. So when it rains, it feels like the sea is washing over you. And I think I've, I've done enough rain and cold. So when people complain here in the heat of the summer, I kind of think, no, I think I can handle this oh, really? you know so i actually loved july and august there oh it's brutal i can't do it i used to come back in those guys it's like when you go to a shopping mall and there's no air conditioning in those underground car parks it's it i, yeah. I, I, felt, I felt like i was going to spontaneously combust well i i tell you what though, timmy i have this thing you know i i always wanted to 
be fit and do exercise but i hated running and then the new science has moved on that says look it's about high intensity interval training it's about stressing the body so therefore i look at that sort of getting out in an underground park out without ac that's a bit stressing of the body you don't want to do it for you don't want to do it for an hour but 10 minutes of it you know it's good for the body it keeps it guessing it keeps it guessing maybe lose a few pounds and sweat you know (laughs) it it makes perfect sense um, right, let's turn our attention to a, A2RL. So where did the concept for the Abu Dhabi Autonomous Racing League originally come from? Whose brainchild is it? Well, Tim, we, we work here with uh, researchers and one of the research centres is a, an autonomous robotics research centre. And if I were to tell you that the first language of many of these researchers is Italian, it might give you a clue as to where motor racing came from. A lot of them had gone to school in Motor Valley and they had uh, motor racing in their DNA. So they were keen to get out of the lab and uh, participate in racing. So they participated in one of the autonomous racing leagues. And then they brought back their stories. They invited leadership here to become involved. And so one thing led to another. We started thinking about what if we were to create something here that had a truly global reach. We, we, we are here in our offices right next to the Yaz uh, uh, Marina circuit. And we thought, gosh, you know, why can't we try to leverage off that, uh, build a racing league from Abu Dhabi and bring the world into Abu Dhabi? I mean, you know, as we always say, 80% of the world's population is within an eight-hour flight of Abu Dhabi. And we thought, wow, this is a great way to do this, where we marry the demonstration of technology and the demonstration of uh, pushing back those boundaries in a sporting format, which enables people to become involved in science. I mean, one of the considerations that we had was that uh, people have become wary of science and scientific development. People have become almost scared. When I grew up, I, I just thought science is a good thing. It's, you know, it's a, it's, it's elongated our lives, it's improved the quality of our lives. But I really became uh, concerned, you know, particularly around the COVID period when you had across the world people having doubts about the efficacy of the science. And uh, so we thought, look, given that we're using autonomous robotics, given that we're using AI, it's important that we we conduct our experiments in the in the public space and what better way to do that through than through a, a sporting uh, platform so that we could involve people in uh, in demonstrating what we were doing as a sporting background so that that was a big driver for us but a lot of this goes back to what the mandate of Aspire is. And Aspire's mandate is to support the diversification and growth of the economy of Abu Dhabi and more generally the UAE. Um, as many people will know, the basis of wealth creation here has been has, has been resource, um, uh, natural resources, particularly um uh, to oil. Um, but w- what we want to do is, and what the leadership of this country wants to do, is to use those resources to bring about a transformation and diversification of the economy so that we see uh, more activity occurring in the um, in the food and the food tech space, in the transportation, in the um, in the healthcare space. Uh, and therefore, um, you're, you're actually seeing the uh, channeling of new technologies into the creation of businesses. So we saw this also so as the, the basis from taking the technological developments that were occurring in the lab and uh, bringing them into the public space to get in, uh, uh, the public involved and also then channeling that into industrial development. Now, the cars that you use are quite interesting. We've obviously seen things like Robo Race in the past using a certain type of car. Um, you've chosen uh, the Super Formula car. What, what's the reason or the thinking behind using that particular machine? what's the best uh, open wheel racer that we can get and the formula one cars weren't on offer to us Um, but we also wanted to have a one design 
because what we wanted in the first instance to test the programming and the algorithms. So Super Formula, uh, in terms of its performance, comes just just uh, in terms of performance tests. It's just after it's just after Formula One, uh, and it also comes in that one design format. Um, so that was the big motivating factor for us in in getting the Super Formula. Uh, to get that, of course, wasn't easy. Uh, we had to uh, to form a partnership with Japan Race Promotion, uh, given that they uh, commissioned the design and the development of the car. And we'd also have to develop a relationship with Delara, which we were successfully able to do. And, and that actually turned out that, to have one of those uh, coincidences that you can plan for. You know, the history, the UAE was formally established in 1971. And, uh, you know, after we started talking to Delara and JRP, uh, it was kind of interesting to find that you know, Delara was established in 72 and the Japan Race Promotions was 73. So it's kind of neat that the three of us all ended up, uh, you know, oh, you know, you know, starting off and growing up at the same time. Uh, and you could spin that as a story. Hey, we started off that way to do it, but that's not true. Uh, but it's, uh, it's, we really started off by what the, what we wanted in the car in terms of its performance and in terms of its ability to be raced as a one design. Now, uh, you're clearly a man with an academic brain. You're a big brained man. You've done some impressive things. You've, uh, you, you make me feel incredibly thick, as did other guests that we've had on the show. We've had people like Roddy Basso, who's, you know, got NASA science in him and, you know, uh-huh. we've some clever people. So, so what's, in, in layman's terms, because we're simple folk here, what's your, what's your specific role with the organization? What's your day to day? Okay, so I mean, ATORL is one part of of the organization here, and I I, I run two big elements of this organization. One is called uh, the Grand Challenges, or what we like to call it, the House of Grand Challenges, and the the other one is I have oversight of the or, the maturity of the R and D ecosystem here across Abu Dhabi and the UAE. So they're my two big roles. What we mean by the grand challenges are um, we look at things that we expect to come to maturity 10, 15 years from now. You know, we look to where technology will solve some of society's big problems. And we we try to prioritize a number of those and uh, organize them as a challenge and put them out there to the world and say, look, we want to focus on bringing the solution here sooner. We don't want to wait 10 to 15 15 years. We want it to happen in five to 10 years. So then instead of saying we're going to support doing research in a you know broadly based non-directed way we say here's the solution we want we're going to offer a pretty big prize here's the specification of what you must uh, demonstrate and then we we launch and run the challenges so uh, the Abu Dhabi Autonomous Racing League A2RL is actually w- one example of those in a particular way. We have we are roll- next week. We have the finals of uh, an international robotics challenge where, um, uh, in a GNS denied environment, um, you must use a swarm of drones, an unmanned surface vehicle, a robotic arm to go out into open sea, ident- identify a. Um, a particular object, a ship, for inspection and intervention. And we're developing a number of other ones. We're also involved with the XPRIZE Foundation in California uh, on something called Feed the Next Billion, where we're looking to develop uh, fish and chicken without using animal proteins. So that's my um, grand challenges hat. And as I said, 
A2RL is a bit of that. The R&D ecosystem is something I, I guess I got from my early career uh, when I was steering the development of the research and development ecosystem in Ireland. So it's the same thing. In order to bring about the transition of the economy of Abu Dhabi, we need to invest in R&D and we need to make sure that R&D is focused on priority uh, technologies that can underpin the priority sectors that we want to grow. So my role there is to ensure that as we increase expenditure in R&D, that the outputs and the uh, impact, the impact in terms of the high-tech jobs and the growth of GDP across sector is, uh, is optimized. So they're my two dual functions. It's, it's quite a big job, really, when you, when you start thinking about it, you know, diversifying the economy in Abu Dhabi. Yeah. Um, it's it's quite a responsibility. Um, now there aren't there are other organisations. I mentioned one of them, Robo Race. There's the India Autonomous League as well. I suppose for something like this, where your wider remit is to advance technology, it's not yes. just about the series itself. I suppose it's not a bad thing to have competitors or, or other organisations trying to push this technology further. Is is that a fair thing to say? Well, you know, as a background, I'm an economist and I believe uh, implicitly that competition is the best way to get things done. Um, So, uh, I mean, RoboRace isn't active now, uh, but I think it was the it, it, it was the pathfinder. And we're all sort of uh, standing on the shoulders of the developments that they did. And in fact, I'm delighted that some of the participant teams that we have are actually graduates of RoboRace. So there's, you know, RoboRace DNA is is coming true in our racing series. Indy, I think, did a fantastic job in staging series across the US and bringing it even into Europe. And uh, I think in many ways, they, they've taken on from RoboRace uh, to, to scale up what has happened. And uh, as I say, some of our colleagues here had participated in that but what is super is that uh, you know there we are side by side pushing each other uh, and I relish competition I think it's superb and uh, but you know I acknowledge too that all those have gone before we've learned from that we build on their shoulders but competition for me is is what it's all about yeah absolutely and now we've had uh, fairly recently on the show we had Jack from Airspeeder on and there, and we were talking a lot about um, you know why are they doing it what's the point of doing Airspeeder and there was a lot of talk around you know give us 10 to 15 20 years we'll all be flying around in in um, in in the skies in these sort of um, human-sized drones if you like what's your take on the future of travel i mean you're you're developing autonomous ai learning cars do you think putting putting yourself get your crystal ball out 20 years in the future are we going to be flying around are we going to be sitting what reading the paper in the back of an autonomous car a bit of both where where do you see this going because presumably a lot of this is for the trickle down into the cars that people drive every day on the roads Uh, absolutely i I think uh, first up you know while we're having the first race of the Abu Dhabi Autonomous Racing League this April. Uh, that's only one of the platforms which we're going to be racing. We're also going to have drone racing um, in uh, 2025. And uh, we're also going to do off-road buggy racing and in the future, uh, sea-based vehicles. So we're across the entire transportation um, sphere. In terms of where I'd see things, 
I think I've pushed back a lot against the idea of driverless cars because I don't see that as being the way in the next 10, 15 years. Okay, I think in certain urban areas, one will see uh, driverless taxis, okay? But I think the vast majority of us want to drive cars. And so I see our big contribution here as improving the safety of driving those cars. If you think about it, you know, when when I remember my dad's first car, you know, and uh, sitting in and trying to turn the steering wheel without power assist, my goodness, you have to build muscles to do it, right? Uh, but you think of the um, the advances there, and the cars now can do so much more. They can go so much faster. They can brake so much easier. But they are they are they are far more intelligent beings. But what hasn't caught up as much with them is the driver. So I think what the big uh, challenge in uh, ordinary car driving is the gap that has de- developed between the capability of the car and the capability of the average driver. Uh, and, you know, it's scary to see accident statistics across countries where we see increases in accidents, increases in mortality rates. And I think a lot of it comes from this gap between the capability of the car and the capability of the individual. And where you see technology being applied is into dealing with the consequence of that gap in terms of uh, crush zones and cars, in terms of airbags. Wouldn't it be much better if we could bridge the gap um, and uh, now you could say we could go and teach everybody to become a, a Formula One driver, but I think going to happen. But I see where autonomous capabilities can actually step in here and can work side by side with the driver. So I see the cars of the future being very much like the airplanes of now, where um, advanced uh, robotics capability is sitting side by side with drivers and seamlessly interacting to improve the performance. So if I'm driving down the road now and a truck track now is in front of me, I'm very likely to become part of that casualty. Uh, whereas if, you know, if, if a Formula One driver was there, they would effortlessly avoid that by using their skills with the capability of the car. My dream is that uh, our cars will be able to have that autonomous uh, uh, capability sitting side by side and that I as a driver can trust it. That isn't there at the moment. We even see this with lane assist, people turn it off. And that's one of the big drivers for us in terms of playing this out in the public space so that people can develop trust. When it comes to you know flying around drones, I think the use cases here are probably not so much us flying in drones, but the drones doing things for us faster and safer. safer. I give the example of uh, matching up uh, organ donation to those who need to donate it. How often do we hear of people needing kidney trans and heart, uh, transplants and heart transplants being on standby, having to get on a plane, having to get on a helicopter to be brought to the organ? Now, I think if I suggested to a surgeon today that they take a kidney or a heart and put it in a, an autonomous drone and fly from A to B, they would they'd laugh at me. But honestly, there's the capability to use drones for those high-value uh, autonomous drones for those high-value payloads to get things there faster and surer and safer. So I think it's use cases like this that we will see drones getting used for in, uh, in the nearer future. But an awful lot of the technologies we're developing, like in the International Robotics Challenge that Aspire is doing at the moment, uh, you say, what's the point of GNS denied environment? Can you imagine all of these times we hear that there's an accident on the ground uh, in a mine or something like this? And so how often do the first responders become part of the tragedy themselves. Imagine being able to put in drones that can operate in a GNS denied environment on the ground in order to assess 
bring support, being assistance, and assess the kind of intervention that needs to come. So I I I think it's always fanciful to think of us all flying around in a way like the Jetsons or something the Jetsons, like yeah. that. But yeah. I I think the use cases are probably going to uh, are going to emerge in a more stepwise day. And particularly, I really really do push against the idea of driverless cars because. Imagine I go to the airport and I announce to everybody, you've got a pilotless flight. Who wants to get on? I think yeah, you I might don't. find very empty planes. No. Yeah. I, I don't want to, I don't want to do that. I, I like the idea of, you know, incremental changes, things like lane assist and, um, you know, the, the automatic braking systems that they have. I've got, a, I've got an e-tron and, uh, and, and as you say, I tu- the first thing I do when I get in the car is I turn off the lane assist because yep. I, I actually find it dangerous sometimes. Indeed. And even the, the automatic braking thing, like if I get to a 90 degree corner and there's a hedge in front of me, it'll slam on the brakes thinking I'm going to crash into the back of a car. So it seems like there's still quite a long way to go. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, from, from a sporting perspective, though, as, as um, if we put ourselves in the purest um, position, I'm sure you've been positioned um, this question a lot. Does the lack of a driver... Does it does it remove that kind of emotion and ability to build narratives and storylines? I mean, you look at the Drive to Survive sensation on Netflix, which is all about the personality of the driver and the teams. Do, do, how do you sort of counter that? How can we keep emotion and narratives and storylines running in a series where there is no driver? Yeah, I mean, first up, there's no way that you can get the same gladiatorial impact of of somebody being in a car. And by the way, I'd never, I'd never want to see it being taken out. But for us, what we have to do is work very hard at at switching around the narrative. As of now, you have a driver in the car, and coming down the wires on on that driver's ears is all the instructions from the backroom team with all their signs and everything. And we're kind of, I'm sure many drivers would have from time to time flung down their their, uh, headsets when they got in and said, why don't you do it yourself? So we're kind of turning around and saying, okay, guys, why don't you do it? Hop in. So we're switching out the backroom team for the driver and we're putting the, you know, the driver is now the, um, is the programmer who is sitting in the the pit lane. So obviously their life isn't on the line in the same way and there's that certain sense of that drama being taken out. But, so therefore, for us, it's first of all to, to, to actually explain that, how we're doing the switching out. And then secondly, to actually build up the story around the, the, the actual coders. I find it fascinating when I go into a garage uh, and, and I see the mechanics working. Then there's a whiteboard there and there's a few kids doing math. 
on the board. And I think yeah. something cool about that. And I'd like to think that there are people who could never have imagined themselves being a driver, but could become the programmer in a car like the Super Formula car. I mean, that yeah. is, uh, so it's, yeah, it's a different uh, sport. And obviously I think the, from us, uh, what we really want to push is online first. So while we'll have a local audience, but what we really want to do is develop the online capacity, develop the VR capacity, develop the gaming capacity um, so that people can become uh, immersed in the, in this uh, activity. So very, very different and a big challenge to us. But one of the things I want to focus on is building up the stories behind and the personalities of the coders. Now, just focusing on the the technology a little bit more, um, there's lidars, there's radars, there's AI. How does the this little box where the driver usually sits give us a, a, a quick explanation of how on earth do you get a car to drive around a complicated set of corners without a driver? Okay, so there's a there's a physical thing that goes in there. We call it a skid or a stack that goes in. It sits right, in, so it sits where the driver does. Um, and right in the middle of it is a big computer. Uh, and below this computer is a whole sets of actuators. So instead of the steering wheel or the, or the brake or the accelerator, you know, we, we have a, obviously we have braking and acceleration that, but that's connected into this computer through a drive-by-wire system. Uh, with, um, then on top of the computer, as you say, we have LiDAR and radar and cameras and GPS, um, and they're all taking in perception data. That's the eyes of the of the vehicle. Uh, of course, it's taking in all of the other data as well, like tire pressure data, temperature data, um, engine control unit data, and it's all been fed into that computer. Um, and uh, true, and obviously the first challenge is, is to fuse all that information into a way in which it can be coded. Now, the next thing is you, you've got to code it. And there are a number of modules in which you have to code this. The first thing is the, what we might call the local environment. That is the, the car as it sits on, a, on, 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 on the ground and how it interacts with that. So you have the various actuation and the signals that come from the drive-by-wire system. And that must be optimized for the actual road conditions that are there so that obviously the you know you can program the car to move forward you can use the actuation in terms of turning braking speeding uh, now what you got to do is you got to um, you got to engage that with the environment so we can actually get the car to go straight and stop um, that's very easy but now we want the car to come and take into account the actual track it's on and actually be able to negotiate around that so therefore you have to take the data from the lighter and the radar and the cameras and the gps and be able to do that now that gets you to getting a car going around the track but the real next thing and this is really the secret sauce of the different teams is how do you actually optimize your racing strategy your racing lines which is exactly what a driver has to do and interestingly enough what you find is you find that the those people doing the program the coders their own personality will have a determination on the risk taking that they go in there so the human element gets caught in there so it is it is quite a bit of computing uh, as i say um that uh, that has to be done and certainly it's something um the uh, that that i can't do um but um, it's something that um, we, these kids can really do, which is which is a fascinating thing uh, to to see in operation. What's the coolest thing about your job? I think the coolest thing is the people I get to meet. 
Um, I mean, I, I think my job has been very varied. Uh, you know, when I was in my 20s, I thought I got my my dream job. I was a university lecturer in economics, and I thought this is all I'm ever going to do. And here I am in my 60s, and I'm, find, I'm meeting kids that are teaching me new things the whole time. So I have to say it is it is the people I meet and what I learn from them. Now then, we have a final three questions, which we ask all of our guests, and they throw up a myriad of different answers. The first one for you, and this doesn't have to be motorsport related or job related, could be absolutely anything. You can treat it how you want. What's got you excited at this very moment? Okay, well, let me see. If, if you're asking me this last week, I said going to the ballet in Abu Dhabi, um, but oh, uh, nice. which, uh, by the way, was fantastic. It was the Chinese National Ballet doing uh, Nutcracker, which was absolutely amazing. Um, tonight, it's going to a, a Pilates class in the near term. I think that the, the, the broader thing is... Um, is, I mentioned earlier that I have responsibility for grand challenges, and obviously A2RL is one of those. But we're currently mapping out um, the where we're going to go over the next three years with this. And it's it, from a job point of view, that's really exciting, where we look at some of society's big challenges and decide what are the ones that we're going to focus on launching. So that, you know, in a professional sense, that's, my, that's the thing that's really, really exciting me at the moment. I'm slightly concerned that you're excited about going to Pilates. I can't think of any, anything worse. Um, but, well, but well done, you. Keeping yourself physically fit. Healthy body, healthy mind. All that. Mm-hmm. I, I get it. I get Absolutely. it. Um, what's, uh, what's one lesson your job has taught you that you think everyone should learn at some point in their life? Learning how to ask questions. I think, and I know that sounds very simplistic, but um, I find again and again you're in a meeting and uh, you know you're trying to take in what's there. And I've always admired when somebody asks a question that everybody looks up and says, "Wow!" Either that's the question I wanted to ask, or "Gosh, that then starts shedding light on what's happening." So it's learning to do that, um, and, and it's particularly. I mean, when you start out your career, you're learning to do it in order to do your job. When you go on, when you become a manager, a leader, you're learning how, you know, you're going to be working with people that have such skills and knowledge that you don't have. And you've got to figure out what you need to know and how, you know, therefore being able to ask the right questions and learn to do it. I, if I, I find it is a really important skill and it's an important at any point in your life. And I don't think anybody in a school ever told me that. Uh, and I figured it out. But if somebody was asking me for advice, you know, work at, work hard at learning to ask the right questions, which isn't easy, is it? Because you no. don't want to appear like, you know, you're in a you're in, if, especially if you're well into your career and you're expected to know certain stuff. Sometimes it's not easy to put yourself out there in a room full of other very intelligent people and say, "I don't know the answer to this. I need some help." It's it's a difficult skill to master that, and I think it's it's something that I've I've noticed throughout my career that people are terrified to, especially in a group environment, aren't they? To go, hang on a minute, let me just ask a question. Uh, absolutely, Tim. And, uh, you know, I used to lecture first year uh, students for years and years, and I used to say to them, guys, you know, never be afraid to ask a question. Never be afraid that you sound dumb in asking a question, because I can guarantee you that when you ask it, there'll be so many people in the in the room relieved that you asked this question. And you're right, you get on. I mean, I went and became a CEO of a management institute in my 40s, and I'd never taken a management course in my life, right? Now, you know, I could, I could have spent the next eight years 
being kind of, you know, trying to hide my lack of knowledge. But instead, I just said straight out, this is what I know, this is what I don't know. And here's what I need to know if I'm to do my job. So there is that point about being absolutely clear cut. And, if, you know, if day one, you come out and ask the question, because look, I want to do this job, I need to know these things that will be respected. And then as you get on in your, your career is to actually figure out, you know, if you're if you're to make a decision, um, you know, I, I look at some of the great leaders in the world um, and you, you know that, you know, they can't be an expert in all these things, but they have to rely on the input of experts. So they make decisions because they can ask experts the right questions so then they can make the best decisions. So in all times in your career, work at, learning to ask the right question. Have you found, uh, being someone that's worked in North America and in Europe, do you find that has that, that asked that inquisitive and open uh, question, uh, asking questions openly, do you find that changes from country to country? Because one of the, I, I worked in the States a little bit and what I found there was, um, you know, people seem to be more open about asking questions, uh, celebrate success easier, um, you know, even like bankruptcy was like a bank, a badge of honor rather than, you know, the, the, the absolute, um, pile on that you get about it in, in the UK. Have, have you seen people's attitudes to work in that kind of regard different as you've gone across different continents? Um, I think there are, there are major differences. I mean, I think when I went to North America first, I would have found the confidence that people had sort of knocked me back. And I was yeah. thinking, wow, gosh, these people must know so much more. And then you learn that, well, you know, some people actually have a, you know, it's, it's, it's not something they're putting on. It's just that they're brought up to be confident. I mean, I grew up at a time in Ireland when the country was pretty poor. And I can even see now, you know, that my own kids as they grew up are, you know, I, I've got about 10 years between my eldest and youngest guy and I can see the difference between the the kind of environment they grew up in. What's very interesting about working somebody like the U, somewhere like the UAE however is the fusing of cultures there which is quite fascinating. You know there's you know there's so many people from so many different parts of the world and it's a it's an interesting uh, fusing and, and that again is an interesting environment in which to work as you try to understand where people are coming from. You know you really have to get into understanding personality types, understanding how people acquire knowledge and make decisions to manage in this kind of an environment. Now, final question for you before we let you get on with your day. What are you scared of? <laughs> Cats. Shut up. Serious, yeah. I I don't know what it is. I, I the way they look at me and the thing is I have a I have a German shepherd dog. And I don't know whether he gets it from me or what. He's absolutely terrified of cats. They make him, they really make him very anxious. But I can, I, I have no job where, you know, no job challenge or anything like that. But cats, I just, I don't know. Cats and me don't get on. That's so weird. I don't think I've ever met anyone scared of cats. I mean, it's because of an allergy or something, but, you know, no, that's tiny little adultery. bundles of fur that's the way they look at you they just stare there at you and you, you think about what they're they're dreaming of doing to you i think that's the yeah. problem you know yeah they're plotting to take over the world i've got two oh they are they're, they're, oh yeah yeah and both mine bean and phoebe they're arrogant little bastards and they, <laughs> they they do just look at me like one day i will kill you while you sleep <laughs> that's um, where but, i'm thinking yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I get it. I'm, I'm, I, I understand that uh, concern, and you've obviously passed that on to your massive dog as well. So, uh, the yes. two of you 
can go off and be fearful of cats together. But listen, thank you so much for joining us. It's fascinating hearing from you. I always love talking to people who have had interesting and varied careers and, and, and are trying to affect change in more than just the, the entity that they're working in, in this case, the, the, um, the Autonomous Racing League, which sounds really, really cool. I can't wait to see the cars in action. Um, but for now, thank you so much for joining us on the Motormouth podcast. Thank you, Tim, and thank you for your interest. Thank you so much for listening to the Motormouth podcast. Do make sure you give us a follow on our socials, Twitter at Motormouth underscore, Instagram at Motormouth underscore official, and Facebook, just search Motormouth. You can also download the Motormouth app where you can get exclusive video content from MMTV, create your own social profile to interact with other fans, and check up on all the latest happenings with whatever motorsport takes your fancy. We're also proud to be supporting the Brain Tumor Charity too, so make sure you check the links in the podcast description to find out how you can help cure brain tumors quicker. Don't forget to like, subscribe and review. And until next time, you've been listening to the Motormouth Podcast.